Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. If you have your Bibles or, or your Bible apps open to 1 John, that's where we're going to be today. And while you're turning there, I, I've shared this before, but I, I think it's worth sharing again because of this, this book that we're in. When I was in sixth grade, I got invited to, to church, to a youth group, and it was 100% a ploy to get Frank saved, okay? Um, at, at the youth group I went to, they had this guest speaker, and this guy was the definition of a fire and brimstone preacher. I mean, from beginning to end, it was just about how gnarly hell is, all right? It was just, hell is a terrible place lake of fire, eternal darkness. He started talking about gnashing of teeth, and I don't even know what that meant at the time. I just knew I didn't want my teeth to be gnashed, okay? So uh, he ended his sermon by saying, if, if you don't want to go to hell, uh, pray this prayer, and I prayed that prayer so hard um, because it literally scared the hell out of me, all right? Like, I did not want to go to hell, so I prayed a prayer. Uh, at the end, he invited those who prayed the prayer to come to the front, and he handed everybody a Bible and a bookmark with your name on it, and he turned to me and he said, Frank, Congratulations, today you are a Christian. And I said, sweet. And then the next week, I prayed the same prayer because I, like, like, like I just wanted to hedge my bets on this situation, you know what I'm saying? And the following week and the week after that and the week after that, probably in the, in the time span of 6th grade to 11th grade, I probably prayed the prayer to receive Jesus into my heart like 500 times, all right? Uh, if there was an altar call, I was there. I prayed every single time. I did this because I didn't have assurance that I was a Christian. All I knew was that uh, Frank was not living a life, wasn't speaking like, wasn't acting like a Christian should act, speak, and live. And, and the reality is, is I, I didn't care. All I knew was I just didn't want my teeth to be gnashed. That's all I knew. And, and, and I wish, I wish someone had sat me down and read First John to me. Because this is what this book is all about. It's about assurance. First, second, and third John were, were written by the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. And I don't know if you remember from that series that there's a verse in chapter 20, verse 31, where John basically gives a purpose statement for the entire book. He says the reason why he writes this is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. But the purpose statement for 1 John is found in 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so 1 John is about knowing that you are saved. In fact, the word know is found 40 times in 1 John because he wants you to know. He wants you to have assurance. If you have truly put your faith in Jesus, if you're truly a follower of Christ, he wants you to be confident in your salvation. And talking about assurance is good because every Christian needs to be confident in their faith in order to be effective. If you don't know if you are a missionary or the mission field, you're not going to be effective as a believer in Christ. You need to have assurance to be effective and to feel secure. But also, it's good to talk about assurance because some people have a false assurance of salvation and they need to know that they're not saved. 
the hardest people to reach for Jesus is a person who has the vocabulary of a Christian, but not the heart of a Christian. And if you are not really saved, and I can help you see that, that is good because then you actually have an opportunity to become a follower of Jesus. So 1 John is all about assurance. Now, 2nd and 3rd John are like small personal letters. Both are like under 300 words. They're, they're very small books, almost like a PS to 1st John. 2nd John is about not letting false teachers into the house churches so that they don't continue to spread their false teaching. And 3rd John is a very specific letter about making sure that the church uh, uh, invites and welcomes authentic missionaries into their homes. And he specifically is telling one person in that church to stop being a jerk to everybody. Okay, so that's second and third John. But, but today, for our purposes, I want to focus on first John. Because for John, there are three signs that, that you should see in yourself that will reveal to you, that should give you assurance that you are a true follower of Jesus. And I'll tell you what those three signs are right now. There's a theological sign, a moral sign, and an affection sign. Theological, moral, affection. And so what I want to do is, is, is take these different themes throughout 1 John, find all the passages in there about these themes, and, and kind of show us today how we can see these lived out and apply them to our lives. So let's begin with the theological sign. The, the question we need to answer for the theological sign is, do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe Jesus is God? So 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So to understand First John, you have to understand a, a popular false teaching uh, that was going on in the early church. And that false teaching is called Gnosticism. And so Gnosticism gets very famous in the second and third century, but it was kind of rearing its ugly head in the early church around the late part of the first century. And so Gnosticism is this false teaching that believes that everything physical, everything that's of matter is evil, and everything spiritual is good. And as these people who were Gnostic teachers, these Gnostic believer people were coming to Christianity, they were trying to bring together their Christian faith with Gnosticism, and they would say, hey, I know what the apostle says, but ignore the apostles. We have special knowledge. We have this new word from God. Ignore them and follow us. And the main issue that these uh, false teachers were propagating is that they had an issue with the humanity of Jesus. They, that if everything physical is evil, then God could not be fully human. It doesn't make sense to them. And so most Gnostic teachers would say, well, Jesus was fully human. However, um, they denied that Jesus was born of a virgin. They would deny that Jesus was sinless. 
they said that when Jesus was baptized, it was at that moment the Holy Spirit entered him, and it was only at that time when Jesus was God on earth. But before Jesus died, the Spirit left him, because certainly God cannot physically die, right? And, and, and they would deny the resurrection. So the church John is writing to is confused. People who they thought were believers were rejecting Jesus. The false teachers were making people doubt their faith. And and John wants to assure them, those who believe in Jesus know the truth and they can be confident in the truth that they know. And so in this passage that we just read, the word antichrist shows up. And in fact, John is the only person in the New Testament who uses the word antichrist. And I have to talk about this because as long as I've been a Christian, everybody's been the antichrist, right? Obama's the antichrist. Trump is the antichrist. Elon Musk, Fauci, Putin, Zuckerberg. Like everyone's the antichrist. And that's confusing because everybody can't be the antichrist. You know what I'm saying? Hear me. Just because you don't like someone doesn't make them the Antichrist. More so than that, if you call someone the Antichrist and you find out they're not, you just committed slander. So, like, let's be careful not throwing out that title at anyone who just is kind of famous on TV. You know what I'm saying? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about the man of lawlessness. And that's Paul's name for the Antichrist. And, and, and this figure will show up before the second coming of Jesus. He will be the one that will oppose God and will exalt himself to be worshipped by the world. But look at what John says in 1 John 2 verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Watch this. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So for John, this is an, there is an Antichrist to come. He talks about that, verse 18. But there are already antichrists here, already among us. And antichrists, according to John, are those who deny that Jesus is God. So John, who was Jesus' best friend, is not writing this letter to just call out the false teachers as much as he's trying to give you and I and the early church assurance to give them confidence. And what makes you right with God is you putting your faith in Jesus Christ. If you can affirm the person and work of Jesus, that's a good sign that you have salvation and that your salvation's authentic. First John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This verse is huge. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. There are, there are plenty of people 
in this world who are willing to affirm and acknowledge that Jesus existed. But acknowledging his existence does not save you. James tells us that the demons believed Jesus was real. The demons weren't saved. But, but, but those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, those are the ones that have the evidence that the Holy Spirit's living inside of them, that, that Jesus really is who he said he was, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, born of a virgin, sinless and perfect. He died on the cross for our sins, and he was buried, and he resurrected three days later, still fully God and fully man. And now he has ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. That is who Jesus is. And if you put your faith in this Jesus— Jesus himself tells us in John 14 that he's going to send a helper, a teacher. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is that he takes your hard heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh so that you can believe in who Jesus is. The Bible says that he's going to renew your mind, that he's going to be able to change your desires and your affections towards God. So the question I'm going to ask again is, do you believe Jesus is God? Because if you do, That's a good sign that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, illuminating to you the truths of who Jesus is. And if you have the Holy Spirit, that's the ultimate sign that you are truly a follower of Jesus. That should give you assurance. The next sign of assurance in this this book is the moral sign, the moral sign. And so the question you should ask yourself is, do you keep God's commands? Do you keep God's commands? A consequence of Gnosticism is that if, if everything that's physical is evil and only spiritual is good, uh, in, in their eyes, those two things don't interact with one another. So you can live however you want. Be promiscuous. Do whatever. Get drunk. Get high. It doesn't matter because what you do with this physical body doesn't affect your spiritual destination. And John has a lot to say about that. So chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So a person who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ is a person that knows that they sin. All right? Like all of us. Everybody, you, me, your mom, your grandma, your great-grand, everybody who's ever lived has sin. All of us say, think, and do things that offend a holy God and his good kingdom. To, to, to be Christian, you must at minimum acknowledge your own sinfulness. Why did Jesus come to die? For 
our sins. That's why he came to die, to pay the penalty for our sins. To acknowledge sin is to acknowledge that there is a holy God who has the right to make judgments on how we live, how we think, and how we act. Our, our culture, however, refuses to call things sinful. Calling things sinful in this world sounds a little bit too judgmental or self-righteous. And in some cases, things that are clearly sinful in God's eyes are celebrated in our world. But one of the promises of the Holy Spirit is that you will have conviction of sin. Whenever someone comes to my office and they sit down in front of me and they're like upset because they did something wrong or they feel remorse over some sin, before we go any further, I affirm them. I try to encourage them because that feeling that causes you to want to confess sin, that feeling where you are knowing that you did something wrong and feeling remorseful about it is a good thing because that means you have the Holy Spirit in you convicting you of sin and leading you towards confession and repentance. If you feel that feeling of, I did something wrong or I shouldn't have done that, don't drown that feeling out. That is the grace from God that he's given you the Holy Spirit so that you can even be aware that what you're doing or what you're thinking about or what you're interacting with is sin. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't feel bad about your sin. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, yo, this is a bigger issue. That means you don't know Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John knows that we will all sin, but when we confess our sins, we have an advocate on our behalf. In other words, I've said this, like every sermon I always say this, is that when God sees you, if you are a Christian, he doesn't see your sin, he sees Jesus' perfect life on you. Because if he were to see your sin, you would still stand condemned. But because of Jesus' perfect work on the cross, when the Father sees you and you've put your faith in Jesus, Jesus represents you and therefore he welcomes you into his family as his own children. And John is trying to connect this and comfort you to give you assurance. Verse three, and this, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Confidence, assurance, you can know him. Here's how. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So for John, you cannot say you have a relationship with God and not keep God's commands. Even Jesus himself says this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. For Jesus, true love manifests itself in your willingness to obey Christ's commands. A transformed heart must lead to a transformed life. Your obedience to God is the evidence that you are a believer. Now hear me when I say this, because I know someone's gonna send me an email and say, Frank, this sounds legalistic. It sounds like you're saying we have to be perfect, and that is not what I'm saying. It is not about the perfection of your life that matters, but the direction of your life that matters. I'll say that again. 
It's not about the perfection of your life that matters, but the direction of your life that matters. Is, is there a desire, an orientation towards confession and repentance? Is there a desire, uh, something in your heart that desires to obey God's word and scriptures? Even if you do it imperfectly, there's a desire towards that to pursue holy living. Do you obey God's commands? Now listen, we have to have a hard conversation because there are people in your life whom you're convinced are Christians but have not showed any evidence in their life that they are. And like some of these people are very close to you. Parents, siblings, children, maybe even your own spouse. And you are convinced because you know that they got baptized as a baby or they went through confirmation or you saw them in crew or, or you saw them growing up in church that you are convinced that they are saved. But if you look objectively at their life, they do not keep God's commands. They have no remorse of sin, no desire to seek confession or repentance. There is nothing naturally inside of them that wants to seek after God. But you don't want to have that conversation because the idea of your father not being a Christian or your daughter being far from God is too hard for you to believe. So you latch onto some sort of event or moment that you saw them in and you convince yourself that, you know what, they're just acting out right now, but they'll come back. But there is zero evidence that they've actually had a true conversion in their life. Friends, there is no verse to support the idea of a person who is living in full rebellion and rejection to Christ and have no fruit of salvation that they're considered a believer. There's no evidence of that in Scripture. And John is trying to give us assurance and confidence to true believers. But in turn, if folks read this and don't find assurance, this same letter is now a warning to say, there's still time, turn to Jesus. He is still there waiting for you. My youth pastor growing up a couple years ago got very upset at me because he heard me preach somewhere in Texas and I was giving my testimony and I said uh, I came to Christ when I was 17 and he was my middle school youth pastor and he came up to me after the service. He's like, what, Frank, what are you talking about? I, you were in my youth group. You were memorizing Bible verses. You went to summer camp. You went to missions trip. I saw you get baptized. What do you mean you weren't a believer until you were 17? I saw you there. And I told him, very honestly, I wasn't a Christian. I had no conviction of sin. I, I didn't care about following God's command in my life. I was about Frank. What you saw from sixth grade to 11th grade was cultural Christianity. I, I looked saved. I had the vocabulary, but my heart was cold towards God. If, if memorizing some Bible verses will impress, impress the, the Christian girls in the youth group and give me a free snack after youth group, I'll memorize some Bible verses. But I would say that what happened in middle school, if there was anything, was the Lord beginning to draw himself to me, beginning to, to draw me to himself. But I did not receive that until years later because I wasn't saved. I needed to be saved. And in God's grace, I got saved. 
My, my life after I was 17 was completely different than before that. I felt conviction of sin. There was a desire in my heart to confess my sins, to repent of my sins, to imperfectly as it may be, live my life in a way that honors God. Some days were better than others, but there was the compass of my heart was pointing towards God, and that's good because at least there's evidence that the Holy Spirit was living inside of me. There's no such thing as a saved person with zero moral conviction. Now hear me, I'm not saying Christians can't have doubts. You can have doubts. Wrestling is a good thing. I want you to be a Christian with a brain. If you have doubts, let's talk about it. But if you have a loved one who isn't living for Jesus and is unrepentant of their sins, don't hold on to their baptism when they were an infant. Don't hold on to some confirmation class or some bookmark in their Bibles that said that they had a profession of faith when they actually have not. Rather, it's worth our time and energy to focus on praying for them, to loving them and showing them the goodness of our Savior and the hope in following the way of Jesus. Life is too short for you to pretend that someone is a Christian. Love them enough to show them Christ. Now, we've talked about the theological sign. We've talked about the moral sign of assurance. And the third and final sign is the affection sign. The affection sign. Uh, uh, The question you need to ask yourself is, do you love other Christians? Do you love other Christians? God is love. This is one of those big verses in the New Testament that we love to, you know, know, put on art and, and get tattooed on us or whatever. I love that John is known as the apostle of love. He talks about God's love and how we should love others more than anyone else in the New Testament. But you should know this, that John wasn't always like this. In fact, if you were to read Luke chapter 9, there's a small story of Jesus heading to Jerusalem, but on the way there, he had to go through Samaria, so he sent his disciples ahead of him to find a place to stay. And long story short, the Samaritans didn't welcome them. They they didn't want Jesus and his followers there. And so James and John go to Jesus and say, Jesus, here's the deal. They don't want us here. So with your permission, let us summon fire from heaven and burn this place down. This is what happened. Like, the, the apostle of love is asking Jesus, can we nuke this place? Because they're not very hospitable, right? By the way, Jesus says no if you're concerned. He said no to that. Um, I bring that up because John is the apostle who talks about love the most. And he went from wanting to blow up a city to being the beloved disciple who would ultimately take care of the mother of Jesus. Something happened in those three years, perhaps observing the amazing love of Christ to the very people who he wanted to blow up, caused him to become the preacher and the pastor of love with the message of love. This is gospel transformation. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for, the love is from, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Propitiation means the payment or the 
the settlement, the settlement of our sins with the Father. For our sins, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, and if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John makes it clear in verse 20, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you are a liar. Because the mark of gospel transformation is that it will allow you, it will cause you, it will make a desire in you to love one another. Love completes the picture of a life found in Jesus. The, the person who doesn't show love demonstrates that they have never been changed by the gospel. But, but let's be careful because when we talk about love, the world has hijacked that word to mean something it doesn't. It, the world wants to take this phrase, God is love, and make it mean something that it was never meant to mean. The world has reduced the word love to unconditional tolerance. And any kind of objection to that world's view of tolerance is considered hatred. And with any kind of pastoral collateral I have in your life, let me encourage you to not buy into it. Because if God is love, then let's let God define what love is. And one of the most beautiful passages in the book of Romans, verses, chapter 5, verse 8, he says, But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's take this verse and everything you know about who Jesus is and what he has done for us in the cross, let's deduce how God defines what love is based on this passage. Love is sacrificial. Love is selfless. Love involves self-denial. Love seeks the benefit of others. Love still loves even when the other person is at their worst. And love still tells the truth. It says, while we were still sinners, God is still calling us for who we are. We are rebellious sinners on a one-way ticket to hell, but God loves you too much. He loves you in spite of your rebellion that he sent Jesus to die for you. Jesus died for you because he didn't want to tolerate your sins anymore. And so that's why he died, because he, is, he loves you too much to let you die in your sins. And so true love cannot be unconditional tolerance, because that would mean turning a blind eye to the very things that offends a holy God. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. The, verse, the chapter that's always read at every wedding. It says in verse 6, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. But from that very same chapter, we also know that love is patient, love is kind, love is not rude, love is not irritable, love doesn't resent. Too often, we as Christians, when, 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 when we are in these culture wars, we gotta talk about, we gotta speak truth in love, we gotta speak truth in love. But practically, what we're seeing is not truth in love, but it's truth and pettiness. Truth while being condescending. 
But for John, the evidence that you are a true follower of Jesus is that you show love to one another, the kind of love that Christ has defined us, the kind of love that God has showed us. We don't get to decide what truth is, what love is. If God is love, then he gets to tell us what that looks like. And more importantly, he says that the way we're supposed to show this love, whom we're supposed to love one another is most specifically to us in the household of God, those who are also believers. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In God's perfect plan for his people, the way the world and the way you and I are gonna most visibly see God is in the way we love one another. But if we argue and divide over the same dumb stuff that the world is arguing about, we shouldn't be surprised that we're not very appealing to anybody anymore. Most people, I'm having the conversations, I'm having the exit interviews, people are not walking away from the church because of our doctrine or because of our theology. They're walking away because of how we have treated one another. We love because he first loved us. And when we choose to not love one another, we become hoarders of God's mercy and grace. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ to be in fellowship with one another. Who else is supposed to be the most loving to each other except for us? This is literally what he's telling us in Scripture. So now here, get, like, like, I get it though. There's some people who are difficult to love. Like if we're the body of Christ, some of you are like the appendix. I don't know why you're here or what you're doing, but you might blow up and hurt us, right? Like I get it. Like I get it. But in those moments when you are with people that are hard to love, instead of withdrawing and avoiding or gossiping and slandering, let us lean into God and ask him to help us to love others when it's hard Jesus loved you when you were hard to love. And the good news is that the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus is in us, so that enables us to love like Christ. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. John wants you to have assurance of faith. He has given us these signs, and, and these signs aren't what save you. They're the consequence of people who are saved. And if those signs are in your life, you can have confidence because that means you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. If you're sitting here today and this sermon has not given you assurance, it's given you uh, maybe a little bit of anxiety, I want you to mark on your orange card that you want to talk to somebody. You want to know what it means to be saved and how to have assurance. And you can even request a, a man or a woman from staff to meet with you to talk to you more about how you can either have assurance or how you can have a relationship with Jesus. When I was in middle school and high school, I was living recklessly. I didn't have a relationship with Jesus because, frankly, I didn't care. I was, I was just scared of going to hell, and that was my only motivation to do anything in church. But two men in my life loved me in the midst of my rebellion, and most importantly, in the midst of my most awkward years of life. It was my youth pastor and my small group leader. And because of their love and their presence in my life, it culminated to a moment where when I was 17, I realized I was a sinner in need of a savior, and I gave my life to Christ that day. Today, I have assurance of my faith because I know I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. But I want to make sure this is clear. I am not a Christian because I'm afraid of hell. Fear from hell is not enough of a motivator to transform people to follow Christ. 
I am a Christian because I know my God loves me. And he sent his son to rescue those whom he loves. My confidence is in the joy of my salvation and the fact that I am his and he is mine. My hope is that every single one of you and everyone you love can have this confidence and assurance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you're good to us. In spite of our rebellion, Scripture said in Romans, while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. And Lord, we praise you. Because you're not a God that wants us to be confused or, 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 or live in some sort of ambiguity to know whether or not we are saved. But you are a God who's not only made it clear in Scripture how we can know if we are true followers following the way of your son, but but you have given us the Holy Spirit to be a witness in our own lives that we are, are, are brothers and sisters, children of the Most High. Lord, thank you that you have given us the ability to have assurance and confidence in our salvation. For everyone in this room or everyone that we love that may not have that assurance, I pray, Lord, that in the same way when I was 17 years old, you have put me to a place where I was aware of my own sinfulness. The, you humbled me to the point where I laid it all on the line to, to give my life to you, Lord. I pray for every single person who do not have assurance of salvation, that they turn to you. They give their lives to the lordship of your son for your glory and for your namesake and for their eternity. Be with us. In your son's name I pray. Amen.